Hello and welcome to the Health Enthusiasm Podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovation and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet, I'm the author of the book called Health Enthusiasm and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business. Every month I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And today we have again a full panel. Calling in from Barcelona is our digital health connector, Aline Noiset. Hola. Our American in Paris and medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hey, everyone. From London, customer experience and research expert, Krupa Sutar. Hi, everybody. And last but not least, from Ghent, Belgium, human experience expert, Mo Zouina. Hi there. Together, we want to amplify the health enthusiasm that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. Now, if you are new to the show, you might wonder what healthusism is all about. Well, healthusism is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthier and happier. So tell me, Aline, what healthusism did you witness in the past months? So my healthusism this month is about teens' mental health. Uh, teens and mental health. So I read recently an article about Discord, the, the communication platform, purchasing an app company called Gas. So Gas is an app built around the concept of teens using technology to complement each other. So through that app, they can share compliments with each other, like through polls, and they can send like anonymous compliments or positive affirmation. It's really around the concept of inspiration and encouragement. And I think that's really, really great news because we know that social media are having um, like a negative impact or an impact on teens' mental health. And I found that concept very interesting on really using empathy and uh, positivity with those teens. And something I was also thinking about is that we know that that's not something that we learn at school. So to have an app that can actually encourage the teens to, to use the platform in that way is really cool. And what I also found very impressive is that the app, so Gas, was launched in August last year, 2022, and they already have 7.4 million downloads. So it's really been very successful around, around the teens. Maybe for the concept that it's mixing like playing and something m meaningful for the kids. So now we can say that we are gassing our friends up, guys. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, and indeed, I love this example. I mean, definitely in the world of social media, teens and games, there's a lot to be happening. And there's actually a lot happening, as you can see here. I, I saw something else in, in that same space. I mean, many people use video games to relax, to relieve stress. And I saw this new col collaboration between Microsoft Xbox and Calm, which is the, uh, if you want, the leading sleep and meditation app. Um, and so what they're doing is they're combining their offering. So you could, uh, with Calm, you could go on Xbox and with um, an Xbox premium, you can go on Calm. And what it provides is that it is actually allowing some soundscapes on Xbox Game Pass where players can actually relax, really meditate potentially even. And it will be free the first three months, it will be 50% off in the, in, in the next year subscription. So we see a lot of things happening in this um, field of um, you know games and teens and social media to really make sure that health is also there very present as well. I like this example and we we'll definitely talk about social media later in this show. 
as well. Um, Aditi, what health enthusiasm did you see? Well, this month was just uh, something I found a little bit humorous. So there was an article in Nature, which is a big journal. Uh, it does, has a digital medicine section. And there was an article about ChatGPT. They were talking about how ChatGPT has been listed as a co-author on four academic articles. And um, how the editors, some editors are claiming that, well, this can't happen. They don't really fit the criteria for what authorship is, because there's actually very set criteria for the AI. And then they're debating whether or not it should be listed or not. And then they're just worried in general, right? So how do you regulate what the AI is saying? And then if you are using it, you really can't technically figure out how to cite it or where it's, what its citations are. So maybe they're missing out on some of that information or where the citations are coming from and then whether or not it's plagiarism. So I just find that kind of the whole thing a little bit, I think it's funny, actually, because everyone wants to use AI. Everywhere you turn, everybody's talking about AI, how it's going to save our entire civilization. You know, really, really, really people love it. But obviously, the technology, as usual, happened, and then it was used in other places that didn't predict it, and now people didn't know, don't know how to do and how to regulate it. I mean, AI is doing exactly what it's supposed to. It's working in the way that it's supposed to, but they don't know how to regulate it. I did think it was interesting. At least authors did cite that they used it. So at least they weren't lying about it. So that's better than not doing that. And it just makes me realize that you're going to have to redo or revamp how education is done because trying to just have people spout out information that they can now use a chat GPT is not going to be useful. Do we go back to more discussions? Is multiple choice better? Is it better to have a way to like uh, share ideas in another manner? It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I love it. And I'm kind of sick and tired of seeing chat TPT everywhere. But at the same time, it's uh, it's super exciting to see and what different types of fields that we that it is all coming. I actually wrote a, an article, uh, I read an article about um, the technology behind ChatGPT, which is GPT-3 right now, because you're talking about making an article, making a publication, but here it went even further. It helped in diagnosis. So the, the technology GPT-3 was used by Drexel University, and it used publicly available data sets of speech transcripts uh, from people with and without Alzheimer's. And so with that data, what they did is they retrained GPT-3 so that it can ident- identify the linguistic nuances that you, you might say between people with dementia and, and, and without. And so afterwards, when they were doing tests with new and other data sets, the algorithm could indeed very reliably detect Alzheimer's patients from the healthy ones. It could even it could even predict the person's cognitive testing score, which is uh, kind of amazing. And, and this all happened without any additional or previous knowledge of the patient's record. So you were talking about making uh, publications and it, it can go even further with this types of um, technology where uh, it could even assist us, assist us in, in uh, diagnosis. And it could be very promising, of course, because it, it, it makes these types of tools very simple and accessible for a large, uh, large community. But I mean, it won't be the last article that we read about uh, chat GPT or GPT-3, uh, for sure. Because you need to know where that information is coming from. I mean, you hit it also with that, with diagnosis. It's where is that information coming from? You don't exactly see it. And so this is what that is also the point here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Krupa, what health suggestions did you bring uh, this month? So I've got a couple for you this month. Uh, the first is from CES. So that's the Consumer Electronics Show that was held earlier this month. There was a launch by the company Withings. So they're traditionally known for their smartwatches and they showcased a new product, which is known as U-Scan. 
So you scan essentially is a pebble shaped device that you put into your toilet at home. And what it does is it monitors your urine and then it analyzes it. And then what it can do is assess your biomarkers. So you can view your results in the app. And then if you wanted to, you could share these with your doctor, which is all uh, GDPR compliant in, in Europe. And then it has separate cartridges as well. So it monitors your hydration, your nutrition. It can also monitor your vitamin levels. Or for uh, women, it can pinpoint your ovulation points in your monthly cycle, their menstruation. So um, it takes it to another level. And then if you want to, you can have tailored recommendations for you know nutrition, for example, or hydration or whatever. So that's the first thing I thought, which was it was quite interesting. And then, unfortunately, the second thing I saw this week, actually, it's been quite big in the UK, was that there was a menopause trial which was proposed to ministers last year in July 2022 by the Women and Equalities Committee. And they published a report to say that the impact of menopause was having a detrimental effect on the UK and it was hemorrhaging talent. What it was also suggesting was it was pushing women, it is pushing women out of work. And so a trial was suggested. And this week, the government rejected that trial. And they, in fact, they rejected five of the committee's proposals. And what they said is that employers should be encouraging workplace uh, menopause policies as opposed to the government suggesting it. So what this obviously means is it's not great for women, women, but government have also suggested that it could increase to unintended consequences, which could lead to more forms of discrimination, and particularly for men. So really sad news that was coming out of the UK this week for women. So those are my two for you this week. This month, sorry. Interesting. And I think you mentioned that um, menopause study before, right? In one of the previous episodes, was it? Yeah, that's a me- so you've got the women's health strategy, which is obviously going ahead. But this was a policy for menopause specifically. All right, sad indeed. Now, about the Withings company, I've had one of their first watches, um, I think about almost 10 years ago now. And it was an analog watch where you can see the, the, the amount of uh, activity that you um, that you had. I really liked it back then. It was, it was different than all the other ones. They sold it to Sony Winnings. They sold the company to Sony and Sony did not do great stuff with it. And they just bought it back. And ever since Winnings has been growing, exploding, it's a, it's an, it's an amazing company. And definitely the, the, the smart toilet thing, it got a lot of uh, attention at CES indeed. It's not the only smart toilet out there, but I really think it's, a, it's, it really plays into a very, interesting couple of trends one being ambient health the fact that we will manage and monitor our health more and more ambiently without having to do actually things differently let's say it plays into uh, gut health it played into metabolic health which we touched upon um, previously as well in, in in the show so i mean i really think it's uh, it's, it's it's very promising actually I, I saw a number somewhere that said that the smart toilet market is expected to be about 7 billion by 2027, that's in that's within four years. So there's a lot to be happening there, and I think um, the interest and the enthusiasm around, you know, this smart toilet, toilet by Winnings was um, is definitely as well uh, showing uh, that. Mo, what's your health enthusiasm this month? Well, my health enthusiasm is about an investment that CVS has done. They kicked off 2023 with investments in behavioral health and primary care startups. Uh, 
You know that you know it's part of a larger strategy for CVS to boost behavioral health offerings and and expand into a more holistic health. And they last week they announced investments in digital provider Array Behavioral Health and hybrid primary provider Carbon. At the same time, there were speculations that circulated that CVS is looking to buy Oak Street Health, a network of value-based primary care facilities that serve adults on Medicare, which is kind of a the leading, I think, insurance. There. Now, what I think is really interesting is that CVS does not look at this acquisition as a silo. It looks at this acquisition because they consider mental and behavioral health as a precursor for more chronic conditions that are more pathophysiologic from a, from a body point of view. And I think that's really, really interesting. So, for instance, it's a, it's a precursor to more serious medical conditions because anxiety can lead to high blood pressure and all of the associated problems. So I really love the, the fact that it's not just bought for mental health or behavioral health, but it is kind of a precursor to a more what they call uh, integrated whole person health. And I really love that, that tendency, you know, healthcare is already siloed too much and that integration and that vision behind integrating that as a, as an investment into better whole person health is, is really interesting. And, and having that behavioral solution under your umbrella is a fantastic way to proactively mitigate costs through the entire pathway of preventative care. So sure, this investment trend will absolutely continue in the future. And I really not only love the investment, but also the very wise vision behind it. I, I, do, I do think so. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious to see what comes out of it because it, the, the, I, I saw the article, it looks very promising, but I'm really curious to see how this will translate as something very tangible and workable, right? I got a last final one. I think last month we talked about how New Zealand banned cigarettes for anybody born after 2008. Like they banned cigarettes for life. Nobody born after 2008 will ever be able to buy cigarettes, which is a governmental action. This month, what I've read is that Canada has adapted their recommendations on alcohol consumption. So previously uh, in 2011, what they were saying is that per week, a man could drink about 15 cons uh, consumptions of alcohol, a woman 10. Now they said every week uh, the maximum consumption or the recommendation for a maximum consumption of alcohol is only two, which is way lower than any other country. And of course, I mean, you could debate whether that has a, a huge impact, but I think it's, um, it's a very clear statement. And I, I really like that example. I'm very curious to see what will happen next. So... With this, there's a lot of positive things that are happening, positive changes that are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. I personally, I really enjoy watching these changes unfold. I analyze them and I try to understand the broader impact of these changes. I even write a newsletter about it. It's called It's a Healthusiasm World. If you're interested, go and discover them on healthusiasm.com. Now, every month during the Healthy Season podcast, I'll, re I'll recap one particular newsletter for the panel to debate, but not this time. This time, we'll do something different. This time around, I want to flip things around. We're at the beginning of the year. Yeah, you might have seen a lot of trend reports passing by. And I was thinking about bringing my own view on what the trends would be for the next couple of years. But instead of me doing a monologue again, I'll ask our experts what shifts, evolutions or trends they consider important in the coming years. Now, a quick remark before we start. 
trends do not have a great name in healthcare. I think it might have to do with the fact that it's not exact science for a big reason for probably, but it's also because trends are very often linked to fashion, to flashy marketing campaigns, or, or maybe even to popular children toys, right? However, these are rather hypes or fads. They, they, they should not be called trends. You see, I call health enthusiasm a trend, but health enthusiasm is a mega trend or a macro trend, if you will. It's been 40 years in the making and will most probably last another 40 something years. But from this mega trend originate smaller trends as branches from the same tree, if you will. And so today, the panel will bring you some health and self-care trends that are perhaps linked to the health enthusiasm trend, but which they consider as very important evolutions. Even that important that many, if not most organizations from perhaps many different industry need to take them into account in the coming years. So I'm looking at my panel now. Aline, what trend did you see in the coming years coming up? So for me, it would be biohacking. So the, the spreading and the de development of biohacking. So biohacking is, is not new. We, we have it today. So biohacking is the idea of hacking your, your body, the vitals, the information that you can collect on your body to make sense of those information and to take actions. And I feel what's missing today is actually those, those two second parts, not making sense and taking actions. So we have solution today like, uh, like Apple Watch, Aura, Whoop, while like helping you to like continually mon monitor some, uh, some vitals about you, like your heart rate variability, your blood pressure, etc. But I feel we're missing that big part which can really make a difference first to understand what does it mean, but what does it mean for me? Because today, so like I've got the aura and they're providing some information. They say, yeah, like the second part of your circle, these things could happen. Yeah, but I would like to know for me, like, am I okay? Is there something wrong going on, going on with me? What does it mean for me exactly? And I feel that's where we're going to see evolution in the, in the coming years to really personalize those information and those actions more and more. And on a technological level, we are already seeing some evolution. So companies like Neurologics or Bina, so they offer apps on your phone and you you use the phone in front of your face for 30 seconds and you can measure different information. So I have it on my phone, for instance, through my insurance in Spain. And now they have a second version that they presented at uh, conferences last year where you can actually just looking at the phone, know your, your level of cholesterol, your hemoglobin level. They can even tell you if you're going to be, if you are pre-diabetic or no. So I think that's fantastic information. But then let's say like I'm pre-diabetic. -pre what do I do now? That's really what I'm missing with the app right now. It's not telling me what to do. And like I'm special, like the, the holistic me won't require the same thing as Mo or, or as Aditi, no? So I think that's where we're going to see more and more uh, evolution. And there was also an interesting article this week from uh, a, a geneticist who, who analyzed drops of blood every day for 15 days. And he took like so one, one prick of blood 15 times or 15 or 19 times a day. And you can really analyze what was happening with him. So you could see like how the body was m metabolizing some, some medicine. How long does it take for, for glucose to spike after eating, for instance? That's interesting for diabetic people. Or they can, you could also know like which food 
was provoking some in- inflammation. So I think that's the beginning, and we're going to see more and more of that. I accompany it with real concrete actions based on me, really for me. That's what you should do. That's what you should eat, etc. Yeah, I, I like it. First of all, I, I wrote an article about it. I call this trend the personal science trend. So it's kind of like the extension or the evolution of the quantified self. Remember when the, um, you know, the smart trackers came out, we could uh, see how many steps we did a, a week or per day, which is interesting, but it's, it's, it's invaluable if you can't do it, anything with it, of course. And so what I see now is that more and more tools are coming to the market, more and more insights we receive on our biomarkers, which allows us to do, if you will, this kind of personal experiments. We could Test for ourselves. What do we need to eat? At what time do we need to go to bed to to see what are the, what is the what creates the best impact on our on our health? And I think we're shifting from the quantified self into a, a more sort of personal science type of era, where people will rather believe the data that they are collecting themselves than an average clinical study. I'm being a little provocative here, but the thing is that, and we saw this in COVID happening as well, people rather believe what works for them than than the general advice. And indeed, the way that it is going is towards biohacking, where we want to have as much as possible information where we can actually hack our own bodies and live as good as we can uh, potentially be. And I think... Personal science, as I call it, is, is one of the, the big things that the healthcare industry needs to be taken into account because it doesn't work any longer to say, I believe, yeah, but studies say, general studies say, I say, because I'm a doctor, that you should be doing this. If people are more and more convinced about their own sort of experimentations that they do at home with the devices that actually are becoming smarter and, and medically approved more and more. So we're nowhere near yet, but I think it's it's a definite evolution, a definite important trend that will have an impact on the future. Adding to what you said now, I think, yes, now we have the tools to collect those data, but we are missing that interpretation of the data or what does it mean and the possibility to talk to the healthcare professional. Like right now, me collecting information of vitals, my aura, I have some doubts. I'm like, what do I do with that? Is there something wrong with me? Shall I go and see a doctor? So that part is missing, the personalization. We always talk about tech, but we know that the human part is still important. And I think that's where we need to go back as well. Yeah, it's about education, understanding the data, making sure that you know what to do with it. I'm sure Aditi has something to say about that as well. Yeah, you know, the trend I was thinking about in general was really, not really anything specific, but really just... Um, you know, as you think about how health comes in cycles and really we're in a cycle that we're going toward more patient centricity and highlighted, highlighted the patient experience in general. That has been a general trend. But, you know, as we have thought about healthcare traditionally, you know, it, it started out that way. People would, uh, clinicians or doctors would go to someone's house. But then we really went away from that. And right now, or it's changing slowly, but, you know, people have to come to us, they have to come to our hospitals, our clinics, they have to come to us to get care. And then we dictated what that meant by health care systems, clinicians. Uh, but now, you know, with a lot of technology that we have, we're, and we're seeing some of the science that Aline brought up as well, uh, we're allowing for more precision care and individual care. We're able to get care at home with, you know, with telehealth and RPM. And all of that is going to be working toward giving patients more information and being the center of their care, which they should have, but they don't actually, they can actually do it and have that at their fingertips. And obviously this is a really good thing. I'm not saying that obviously it's a really great thing. We want patients to have input. They should be able to understand what kind of care they're getting. They should be able to decide what they want and be able to improve their care. 
Um, we can then individualize it, right? Especially for specific or vulnerable populations, people in different geographies, uh, disabilities, different languages, et cetera. It all could be like very individualized. But it does cause a shift, right? And so you have to remember that too. We can say all day that we want patients to have it. But now that you're taking on that responsibility, there is a lot of information in healthcare. There is a lot that goes into health literacy. Once you are taking that on yourself, it can sometimes probably feel overwhelming. It's a lot. It is a lot. And so how do we go through and change that mindset? We're seeing that happen slowly, but we can't just dictate it to everybody. We want them to be part of it. We're going to have to figure out how to do that so it doesn't get overwhelming for some populations. I see it as younger populations, as we raise them, we educate them, this is the norm. It's going to be less so. But, you know, we may not be able to do it exactly that way. Not all patients are going to want that in the way that we think that they do or the way that a lot of people in the tech, in the tech space specifically are hacking and they're dictating it. Not everybody wants it in the exact same way. And so we have to really figure out for that type of patient experience, it again is going to be individual. And so I think I see in the, this future, these next 10 years is really figuring out what that cultural shift means and how does how do we do that? Yeah, I think the way that I uh, often look at it is that you mentioned there's a lot of information inside the healthcare system. I think what's even more relevant is that there's a lot of knowledge inside the healthcare system. And there's a, on the other hand, there's a lot of information and data outside of the healthcare system. And I think this is kind of like the, the clash that we're seeing more and more information on the outside, but not enough uh, knowledge, a lot of knowledge on the inside, but maybe not enough information and data. And I think this is, as you said, will be one of the clashes that we will see that maybe will largely in, impact the patient experience in the healthcare industry. Well, I meant it more that it's overwhelming for patients. It can be oh, yeah, overwhelming yeah. to take on and have to figure out what is that information that I need to share because we're asking them to do it now. And so that is an interesting trend that, again, it is a lot. It is a lot because what, for us, it's a lot. So trying to give that to patients and that responsibility, it's just really, it's, a, it's really a philosophical thing, but it's a cultural shift. Yeah, if I can just add, you just hit the right word, Aditi, responsibility. We are looking at individuals to help support the healthcare system. So we see an opportunity, but it comes with a certain... So we are shifting the responsibility to the individual. And then the last one is, do we have the competence to deal with it? So there's a skill set that we don't have because we used to be serviced on illness and now we need to act on health which is a completely different ball game so i think you just hit the right word it's responsibility and sometimes you you just see the system shifting it to the individual and saying now it's up to you and then just leaving them them out in the woods without any form of support or education so i think that's a big one that's a big one as usual, Mo putting it together very succinctly and better than I did. <laughs> no, it, it was very clear. And I, I, but I, I do would like to make the remark that I think we need to be careful with res- providing or giving the responsibility to patients, but I don't think we should be scared of it. I think we need to make sure that it's framed in a good way and that we give them the tools that indeed the data and information that is out there is transformed into knowledge. I think that is, um, to me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes a bit wary of saying like, yeah, but we shouldn't give the responsibility to patient. I think we should actually, but it, it needs to be done in the, in a proper way. I think we are. That is my point. Totally. We talked about precision medicine uh, a little bit here or more and more information. Krupa, you, I think your, your trend was related to precision medicine as well in some way. Yeah. 
So it is, um, so mine's related to, yeah, personalised medicine, precision medicine, and the link between uh, gut and gut and uh, microbiome. So what we do know is that there's increasing conversations happening around the gut and how what you eat impacts your brain. And we're seeing more and more companies pop up about it. TV shows are happening as well. A lot of people are starting to take or do take already probiotics and then also are having prebiotics. And what I see here is, well, obviously, we do know that the gut microbiome and the immune system are intrinsically linked. And a healthy gut can help you fight your infection. But for those people who don't know, you know, prebiotics, a prebiotic is the indigestible uh, carbohydrate that you have. That's our friendly uh, strain of gut bacteria. And then the probiotic is the friendly bacteria themselves. So in traditional medicine, we've been treating people, the mind and the body separately. But social prescribing is a growing field and it's growing in the UK a lot. And now, if you are prescribed or you're advised to take a probiotic, you can go to your general health store and you can buy that over the counter. The NHS is also starting to use it in practice as well. But the global probiotics market is growing. So in 2021, it was valued at around $61.15 billion. And then expected to grow approximately 7.7% in the next seven years. So going back to the next couple of years, what I expect to see more of is more companies popping up around probiotics and treating individuals. So that is that um, you may have an instance, something that's, you know, you may be fighting an infection, you may have come out of hospital or whatnot, and you're prescribed probiotics. But rather than having the general probiotic they can buy over the counter, it will be prescribed to you. You are getting the strains that you need to help your body recover. And you may also have more and more conversations then happening around prebiotics as well with doctors discussing those issues with patients. So, for example, there are certain foods that you may need to help to help your diet. Again, that's around the shift of responsibility. We already know in the UK that doctors get on average about, I think, seven hours on nutrition or a couple of hours of nutrition in their GP and medical degree, which is nothing. And there are more and more uh, companies popping up around educating trainee doctors. But I feel that this is a growing field and it's only going to get bigger in treating and helping individuals through personalised treatments. Yeah, I fully agree. Definitely. I see uh, Aditi nodding uh, as well. I, I think digestive health and gut health is, is one of the big things that we will talk, be talking about in the next coming years for sure. I think Aline already mentioned last week the reimbursements for a microbiome drug. Even if you look at consumer markets, I recently read a number, it's almost 50% of consumers consider using probiotics. So there's really a lot lot of shift happening there. We say the gut is the second brain, those kind of things. So I think it's early stage in many ways, but the interest is there. And um, I think it will uh, will take uh, take off in the coming years for sure. 
Thank you for that, Trent Krupa. Then we go to Mo. Mo, you had a, an evolution that you wanted to highlight, which is maybe a little bit warning. Is that correct? Well, you know, at Healthusiasm, we're always on the lookout for the next big thing on health and happiness. But, you know, if you're a forward-looking person, sometimes you need to take a break now and then and acknowledge the present and the past because that will kind of predict what we will have in the future. And while this podcast is called Healthusiasm, today's topic might have you saying more. Where the hell is the oozyasm in this one? So yes, today's topic seems maybe less upbeat, but it's just as important. We need to tackle the elephant in the room, or in this case, the elephant in the waiting, the hospital and the operating room. Because today I'd like to address the current health lag, healthcare backlog and its impact on patients, healthcare systems and society. What do we mean by that? The backlog in transitional care means that people have to wait longer than usual to get the medical care that is not an emergency. And that happens when hospitals are too busy with patients who need urgent care or where or when people with ongoing health conditions, they can't get the care they need on time. And this backlog can cause problems for patients' health, the quality of care, but also for finances. Now, the backlog that is causing health services to implode all over Europe is, for the moment, it's just occurring and it's been there for a while. Eh? Waiting times are surging, staff are leaving and patients are dying across the continent. And there's two main reasons. First one is human resources, right? It's a shortage caused by a combination of factors, such as people not showing up for work due to illness, quarantine, Fear of infection, burnout is incredibly increasing within the healthcare sector. The lack of recruitment because of the industry, where the industry used to be, you know, the sexy industry for people to have a fixed job. Now it's, it's just lost its mojo, but also a lack of support and resources. So it's also caused by an increasing number of people, you know, at a certain age leaving the healthcare industry, right? Retirement among healthcare workers, especially those older and more vulnerable to diseases. And it's really affecting the ability of hospitals to provide adequate care to patients and is causing delays in the provision of non-emergency procedure. So if we look at the two most influential countries in the EU, being France and Germany, did you know that in France there are now less doctors than there were in 2012? More than 6 million people, including 600,000 people with chronic illnesses, do not have a regular GP. And 30% of the population does not have adequate access to health services. Aditi, you probably know, they talk about medical deserts in France. Eh? They're, they're boosting GPs to reinstall their practice in areas that are not serviced. And why was that? Well, it's interesting. It's poor planning and even poorer foresight. It all happened in 71, when France kept the number of second-year medical students through a so-called numerus clausus aimed at cutting health spending and raising earnings. The, the result is a collapse in the annual student numbers from 8,600 in the early, early 70s to the half in 93. And now intakes have been climbing somewhat, but the cap was lifted altogether two years ago. But can you imagine how long it will take to reestablish that workforce? I think, you know, and predictions say that it could be 2035 before the country reaches a satisfactory ratio of doctors to inhabitants nationally. Now let's talk about the other elephant in the room is Germany. Eh? 35,000 positions were vacant last year, 40% more than a de decade ago. And especially you see situations in intensive care and operating theaters. Staff is citing a workload so extreme that some were unable to take a short break or even go to the toilet and test that 
that little pebble in, in the toilet. Now, the second biggest reason, it's called a triple-demic. I don't know if you've heard of it. Last winter, it was not the season to be merry. Not. <laughs> this winter, we did not have the triple, the double, but the triple viral whopper. Three viruses peaked at the exact same time. The simultaneous occurrence of RSV, RSV a respiratory syncytial virus, the flu and COVID-19 virus added to the backlog pressure. And it pushed really some healthcare systems close to collapse. I, I had a small conversation with Krupa when we had a first call, you know, especially the situation in the NHS are incredible. So let's go back to the future. What are the outlooks and the potential? We're talking about trends and long-term consequences of this backlog. Well, predictions and estimations on the burden of this backlog vary. Organizations like, now listen very carefully, the European Hospital and Healthcare Federations, which acronym is HOPE, <laughs> And the European Public Health Alliance, the EPHA, have made predictions that give us an idea of the scale of the problem. Now listen very closely. According to HOPE, the backlog in non-emergency procedure in Europe reached 40 million by the end of 22. You could say 40 million? That's not a lot of money. Well, no, it's not a lot of money. It's 40 million procedures. <laughs> like elective surgery, diagnostic tests, and follow-up appointments. And furthermore, this backlog could result in additional costs for care and treatment related to complications. Last but not least, we also see an inflation in price, which will make healthcare less affordable. So it's not a really interesting or enthusiastic trend, but it is something that we really need to address because it's really fundamental. The only thing that makes me enthusiastic about this topic is that we as a team are trying to be part of the solution. Krupa is working very hard in how to improve patient experience. Aline is checking how we can integrate digital as a kind of a basic foundation of health. And Dr. Aditi is looking how telehealth can improve outcomes and alleviate health healthcare system. And you, Christoph, you are integrated health across all brands and trying to make all brands participate in health. That's my health enthusiasm trend for today. And I think we ended it on a good note because I think what we're doing here is really, really important, trying to move the needle forward. But I think it's a really, really alarming trend. It is an alarming trend. So thank you for um, bringing that up. I think we can dedicate probably a whole podcast on the, on, on this topic and see where there are some opportunities. And maybe one day we should uh, we should do it because there's a lot of things happening within the industry, within hospitals that are worth mentioning and that are causing this kind of you know backlash or, uh, or, or or troubles. I think indeed you mentioned that there's some health enthusiasm, there's some things coming up. I think that one of the biggest challenges to me there will be, yes, you can integrate digital health. Yes, you can integrate technology to alleviate some of the, the burden or maybe to make sure that we need less resources or human resources. The thing is very often if you install something, um, it causes a little bit more work. And so you need to get over that hump to actually make sure that it is properly installed and that it alleviates uh, the burden, uh, the work burden for, for other people. And, and this is one of the challenges that I notice in, in, in healthcare is that we don't have the, the span or the flexibility to, to easily add good technology or digital health solutions because at first it will require even more work. Yeah, that's it. I think the fundamentals are there. It will not only require more work, but I think the basic thing is that it will require more money. Health will just cost more if you look at the demographics and implementing new solutions will also 
I think, cost more money in the beginning and then scale and be profitable in the end. So I don't fully agree that it will need to necessarily will need to cost more money. I think we there's right now we're we're working with health services, healthcare services. I think there are ways to make to turn them into products which are cheaper or to create better experiences, which might be perhaps at some in some cases a little bit experience, um, a little more expensive. They will be more impactful. So I think the model that we're using needs some thinking as well. But again, there do we have the time, the span, and and the the, the time investment to 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 get it done? Krupa, what's your take? I think um, digital is great, and we're talking all things digital. But we have to remember there's a percentage of the population who don't have access to digital. And we need to be designing for them. There needs to be people. There's also people who may not speak English or cannot access the services. And we spend so much time focusing and they could be our edge cases, but there's still a large population that we need to design for to make sure that they can equally access the healthcare system. So it's, it's you know, we've got equity happening. So if you're implementing a service, you know, for example, we see virtual wards, that's increasing to take the pressure off the NHS in the UK. But what about those who can't, who don't have access to iPads or, you know, mobile phones or have got a good computer connection? What about them and how do they access it? So I still think there's a, you know, to make sure that healthcare is is equal for all, there's still a long way to go. But if we can sort out the majority, it allows us to then think about the X percentage who, who may not fall into that to make their experience as best as it can be. You touched upon a very important point from two uh, from two perspectives. One is, indeed, we need to make sure that we always keep everybody in mind. And so it needs to be social. We need to think as healthcare something social. At the same time, it should not limit us from moving forward because that is what I've been seeing a lot in, in healthcare. I think we need to move forward with what we have and keep the, the bigger picture in mind. But I think it's important to... Um, to start with even slurt, slow or small cohorts of populations, uh, learn from that and, 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 and make it grow. But anyway, I think we could uh, discuss for a couple um, more hours on this topic. Thank you for this discussion. Now, let's move to the next segment of the Healthy Jasmine podcast. Is it something, nothing or everything? So every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, innovation or evolution forward that sparked their health enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing or everything? This month, I'll be the one that is bringing one of the topics forward. And I'll, this time around, I'll be talking about maybe, I think, one of the most remarkable internet trends that gained a lot of traction during the pandemic, which is called Metfluencers. Now, the word is a combination of the words medical and influencers, and it literally describes, if you will, a social media celebrity from the medical field. And the reason why it became so popular during COVID is, of course, the false information and unbacked claims on COVID-19 that were circulating on social media. Now, Metfluencers then took stage to basically counterbalance or even rectify the situation. And ever since... Uh, you can say that metfluencers have only gained in popularity. Some even attained um, some form of celebrity status. They even amassed about millions and millions of followers. 
And in my expectations, and even if you read about it, it is not going anywhere. Of course, it's still something very new. The healthcare system, healthcare organizations, and even the social media platforms are still kind of like trying to figure out how to deal with it. But the growth in influencers is very, very real. So my question to the panelists, is this a new plague or a much needed change? Or in other words, is this something, nothing or everything? Let me just go straight to our medical. Aditi, are you a medfluencer? I am not a medfluencer. I speak about very specific topics. So, yeah, But in that way, I suppose that people follow me for that. But I am not a medfluencer. These are people with like tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of followers. There were, they actually existed prior to the pandemic, for sure. I certainly know quite a few, but they definitely got more popular during the time. And so generally, I mean, it's something. I think what it comes down to is a couple of things. One, it makes um, doctors human. And so doctors are acting in a human manner and they're doing what everybody else is doing, which is jumping on social media and sharing their lives, sharing information, sharing whatever it is. It has become, like everything else, a way to promote your business, promote a brand, and then disseminate information and then get money and make money off of it, just like it has for any other influencer out there. On the flip side, there is a responsibility because you are giving out information. And so most of the influencers I know are actually very strict on the type of information that they're giving out, but not all of them. Sometimes you'll go on there and they'll be able to send information that is incorrect not in line with science, right? Because when you look out at the pandemic, there were med, there were influencers who gave out information all the time over and over about the pandemic, for example. And then there were ones that were anti-vaccine, anti-science, all of these things to try to derail the conversation. And so these medfluencers had to work extra hard. And really, this is why it became such a big thing. And so that responsibility flows into that. But we, when I look at them too, based on what I just said, there's two different types of medfluencers. Ones there's really ones that are very professional in the way that they go about it, the disseminating information. And then there's the other ones that have a little bit more fun with it, right? They're making videos and they're doing dances. They're doing it the way that everybody else does it to sell the information. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. I think you can do it in a way that matters to you because people want to hear the message in different ways. But I think it does have to be within the line and the oaths that you take as a medical doctor. You cannot sell out things that are not correct. And if you do, you have to be ready to take the heat. That's really how it is. That's how I think about it. And you have to you have to be willing to say no to things. I think in the article that you sent, one of them, the Dr. Mike, I think he's one of the more famous ones, he turns down a lot of product endorsements, he says, which is right. He said, if it's not something that I believe in, I won't do it which is, I think, what you have to do. It can't be something that you just do for money all the time, right? I like your point of view, but one of the things that made me think was that isn't the difficulty with disseminating information um, that is medical also due to the fact that you know, science is often, it's very specific, but there's often like a, a thesis and an anti-thesis, but it's some, sometimes very hard to um, agree upon a synthesis, you know, or something where, which everybody agrees upon. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not talking, you know, on specific cases, but generally speaking. And is that part of the complexity why influencers are are looked upon in a different way as well, or or the danger maybe even of of it? Well, I think you can disseminate information to patients simply. I actually don't think it's that hard to do. That's what we're trained to do. That's what we have to do, and what's what they're doing. 
if you're talking about the complexity of looking at a research study, for example, and trying to parse out what the actual clinical outcomes were, you know what I'll tell you, the problem is sometimes there are influencers who look at the abstract of a study or just at a headline and they may actually sell that information or say that information is correct and they're not actually going to do the evidence. But that's exactly what I mean. Your responsibility is held at a higher regard. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be like, all right, well, this is what the study says, but it may not be true because of this reason. People can understand that. You just have to parse it out and say it in a way that's simpler. But that's what I mean. That responsibility should be there. Absolutely have really read the study and really understand it, not just be like, coffee is going to decrease your risk of heart disease. Do you know how much coffee that is, right? Like that, that when you read this actual study or how much red wine that actually is, like you have to look at that study and not just say these headlines. That's where the problem uh, arises because people will listen to them and believe it. And your job is to be that in between. Yeah, I fully, I fully agree with that. I see Aline nodding as well. What's your take on this, these metfluencers? Yeah, I agree with what Aditi was saying. Now, I think the doctors, they have that natural credibility. If a doctor is saying it, you will you will believe it. And that's what there's also risk, right? If person, doctors are going on, on social media, sharing things that are not true, or maybe some people that are pretending to be doctors, I read about some people saying that there are uh, PhD doctors, not actual medical doctors, sharing information that can be very, very risky. But what I like about those metrinsers is the, the the positive influence that they can have on, on young people. So we're talking about the teens before. The teens, they're often lost and they don't know where to find information, like where, where they're young. Imagine a young girl, she has questions about, about her periods, about contraception. It's not a topic that you, maybe you feel comfortable talking about all the time. And if you have people like Mama Jones, very active on TikTok, that can answer questions, useful information. I think that's great because those people doing it in a fun way, they're meeting the teens where, where they are. I find it also useful, Aditi, you, you mentioned it, a way for them to, a way for those healthcare professionals to promote themselves. Uh, so like, for instance, I'm following a, a physio on, on Instagram. So I wouldn't call it a, a metrinser in the sense you were saying it. It doesn't have millions of followers, but there's a face like I see how he's doing. He's proposing exercises every day. And if tomorrow I need to see a physio in Barcelona, I think I'll go and see him because it transmitted that uh, that credibility and, and trust to me. So I think that's also powerful. Like we need to put that face on people. Like something also, you know, the like in Spain and that we can't do in France, like in Spain, you can leave some comments about healthcare professionals, but the expense of the healthcare professionals, and it's not allowed in France. And I think like I'm lost when I go to France, when I have to choose a doctor, it's like, yeah, you randomly pick you, you don't know, it's going to be good or bad. Well, in Spain, you normally know what the type of person that you're meeting. And for me, social media is the same, those med influencers you know who you're going to meet in advance. It's, it's definitely interesting. And as you said, Aditi, as well, I mean, it makes doctors human as well. It brings you a little bit closer uh, to them. I think one of, the, one of the dangers related to that is that the algorithms of social media do not necessarily favorite high-quality content. It is more focused on clickbait or more focused on quantity than it is actually on quality, which, which kind of makes it difficult and which puts a pressure on the message that Medfluences might convey. What is your um, take on this, more Medfluences? Well, you can't exclude the healthcare sector, sector from the communication culture, you know? And what precedes knowledge? It's attention. 
So I think it's inspiring for also the more corporate organizations to know what is happening and how they can engage and get the attention for if, if it's really important and they really need to, to reach out to a certain community or anything else, they need to think about the format. I've worked with a lot of companies that just said, you know, we've said it, it's out there and now deal with it. And they didn't do, they didn't make a lot of effort to make it snackable, engaging, interesting. They also said, you know, you wouldn't know how many companies I've worked with that said, you know, why don't we just send one mail with seven topics? So it's out there. Right. And I say that's not how it's working. So I think the format, the inspiration is interesting on the format. It's engaging. It might be inspiring for more corporate brands. Secondly, we have this romantic idea about HEPs that they are ethical and things like that. I know HEPs that just want to make money. Right. And they're out there. And I think it's important, you know, but I think the net benefit will be positive. The only caveat is to quote uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is that, you know, snackable content is not contextualized, as Aditi said, right? So you could have highlights just out there that, that are there. And I think as far as uh, the quote is, is the challenge of this era, era, the era that we're in, is knowing enough about a subject to think you're right, but not enough about a subject to know you're wrong, right? So if you take that first information and you make your opinion based on that very limited information, like coffee is good to reduce cardiovascular risk, you know, then it's not contextualized. So there's pros and cons, but I think the net benefit will be in favor of education and empowerment. Yeah. I've read somewhere that um, I think in two different reports from different social media channels, that about 40% of consumers or people online change their behavior based on what they've read or learned on social media. Um, and we're talking chronic patients here as well. Um, so, I mean, that this is the kind of influence that they have. And so indeed it needs to be contextualized. So there's a bit of a challenge there as well. Either you feed the, the, the algorithm, either you want to make sure that the, the, you convey the right message. I just one thing, we need to acknowledge that our brain is lazy per definition. So if it's out there, and it's easy, we'll get it, we'll consume it, right? So we are sometimes asking a lot of effort from people to go the extra mile and contextualize it. And that for me is the main risk. You know, our brain is the the, the most energy consuming organ we have. It is designed to be lazy, right? So if it's snackable and if it's ready and things like that, and people understand that, and they can use it to their advantage, they will do it. And some will do it for the right reasons, some will do it for the wrong reasons, and will cut corners. Yeah, and I think that brings us back to the discussion that we had previous podcast, but also also in this podcast already, the difference between information, data, and knowledge, of course. And that is a challenge you can hear. Krupa, what's your take uh, on the Metro Answers? I think in the age of um, misinformation and disinformation, this is definitely huge. What I see, though, is the conversation in, in two different ways. I see doctors talking to each other on one particular platform, which used to be Twitter, known as, and they, they're known as the Med community or Med Twitter. So they will often talk to each other, um, get advice, go back, you know, implement these, the recommendations that they may have, or they may just be having general conversations. So you've got that level of conversation happening to each other and then you've got those who are then actually taking out to the masses through platforms such as Instagram and Twitter, Instagram and TikTok and maybe Facebook I'm not too sure if there's prominent on there 
I have to say, I follow quite a lot of uh, medfluencers. I actually found my own dermatologist through Instagram. But what I would say is that you've got to, I guess there needs to be a level of education and the person viewing the content, as we were saying before, how do you educate the general public that this person who claims to be a doctor is actually a doctor and therefore their content is you know, valid and maybe you want to take those recommendations and put them forward into your own, own life? Again, it is just a snippet, but you know, I could say I'm a doctor, but I'm not. You know, I could be a doctor of cooking, <laughs> you know, but I'm not a doctor. So therefore, it's, it's just how do you educate those people who are going to these individuals for advice? I strongly believe, though, that those people are out there, they're having an influence. And, and it's great because they're sharing the knowledge and they're taking and they're potentially voiding what you may read, you know, for example, around COVID-19 and disinformation. That's amazing what they're doing. But how can you make sure that they are people are educated who are consuming their content and not just, you know, drinking something for the sake of it because so-called doctor said it on Instagram? Yeah, fully agree. I think it's an interesting topic. I think we'll see it uh, evolve in the next coming years for sure, because it's growing steadily. They're also one of the most trusted influencers on social media. So there's a lot to be happening um, there. It's clearly something, but now time for something else. In this health enthusiasm world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare, wellness, and consumer businesses. You can see how consumer businesses are slowly moving into the wellness and healthcare space while the healthcare industry is paying more attention to what is happening outside of their industry. This brings the following question. What behavior, innovation, or trend from one industry could be worthwhile for another industry? In other words, what should we bring outside in or inside out? Tell me, Mo, what's the ID innovation or evolution that you would consider bringing inside out or outside in? Well, Christopher, I have to say what I love about this podcast and the team is that we all bring a wealth of experience to the table, having spent several years working or in the pharmaceutical, the health and the wellness industries. And we're kind of using our can I say it, heritage or experience to dive deeper into these fields. But in the recent de decade, we've seen an influx of companies and organizations venturing into this sector without any prior experience or background in the industry, in the health industry. And I like to call it the health Dorado, right? A rush of companies wanting to make their mission to tap into the potential of healthcare market. And Christophe, you made it your mission to guide these businesses, helping them to understand the nuances, complexity, and responsibility of this shift and unlock the value of this full opportunity. And the dynamics of companies that are not in healthcare shifting to healthcare they're obvious. Eh? There's revenue and profit. Uh, global health expenditure has reached over 
10 trillion in 22. And that's a significant opportunity for companies to expand their business. Second is often it's technology driven. Many companies have recognized that their technology can be useful and can you disrupt the industry of the health technology, which can lead to more efficient, effective and personalized care for patients. Some brands also move into healthcare because it adds to their brand purpose and their value. After the ecology wave and some serious greenwashing here and there, many companies see healthcare as a way to improve their the overall well-being of society and contribute to the lives of people. Companies that are socially responsible and want to make a positive impact in the world are attracted to the healthcare industry as it aligns with their values and goals. Fourth, main driver is the sponsor. <laughs> Governments are desperately looking for ways to contain the budgets and are looking at technology to improve health outcomes and reduce costs. And that's an opportunity for companies to participate in the healthcare industry by providing solutions that meet the needs of our society. Now, the latest evolution in this, as you asked me, is what we call at Healthusiasm, healthertainment. Certainly, in recent years, media platforms as Netflix and Apple have been exploring ways to use their technology and resources to improve the healthcare and make it more accessible to people through media. And they're part of a broader trend of media platforms. They're looking for, they have new areas of growth and innovation and healthcare is an industry with a lot of potential for disruption and improvement through media. But what is so potent about media platforms moving into healthcare is that they can reach a wide audience and promote healthy lifestyle in an engaging and relatable way. We talked about it with the uh, Metfluencers and by producing, they have the experience to produce content and campaign content that is so engaging that it could really shift behaviors, right? They can educate and motivate people to make positive changes in their lives. And with the rise of streaming and on-demand services, media platforms can create personalized and interactive experience that can help people achieve their health and fitness goals. And lastly, they also have the ability to leverage data and analytics. They know that, right? So I think it's really interesting. But to quote Alanis Morissette and to finish to finish, isn't it ironic that media platforms, which have been criticized for contributing to sedentary lifestyle, are now moving into the healthcare industry to promote healthy living? With streaming services like Netflix, it's easy to spend hours binge-watching TV shows and movies, often at the expense of physical activity. And now these same platforms are producing content that encourages people to exercise, eat well, and live a healthier life in front of their device. Uh, talking about a split personality. Now, it begs the question, will we soon see Netflix subscription being prescribed by our GPs or reimbursed by the government? It's not a far-fetched idea, as we are already seeing healthcare providers prescribe digital health solutions, such as virtual therapy sessions, digital therapeutics, which are often covered by insurance. As media platforms continue to expand their offerings in the health and wellness space, it will be interesting to see how they are integrated into the healthcare system. So fascinating development in the healthcare industry. And I'd like to know, Krupa, what is uh, your opinion on that? And do you see, do you see that having uh, some potential? I was thinking about this one because I think personally, I think it's a privilege. You've got to be able to afford Netflix. You've got to be able to afford Apple, you know, or the latest TV or the smartphone or whatever it is, you know, that you're going to have to be able to afford this luxury of then being able to benefit from, say, Netflix and Apple Fitness is a collaboration with each other. I think what becomes the question for me is Netflix, Apple, 
Samsung, they're all taking this data. They've all suddenly got all this data from us. What are they doing with it? And how are they then sharing it? Are they are there plans to share it and make it available with the government so that truly we can become a more healthier population? Obviously, you've got huge GDPR considerations to think about this. But the entertainment industry, yeah, it has a, a huge influence on us all. And like you say, you know, it, they've encouraged us to be sedentary. Is it that they're encouraging, encouraging us to view Netflix more, but then say that we've been active, but we haven't really been active? I don't know how they're going to monitor it. I guess my other factor here that I want to consider is that the entertainment industry is promoting this. But there's been so much discussion this week and over the last few months on the mental health of people working within the entertainment industry itself. And you have actors who are required to look a certain way for a certain film or part. So it's all good and well pushing a solution to us. But what about looking within and looking at the industry as a whole and saying, well, how are we treating the people who work with it within it? And are we promoting an active lifestyle? We're asking them to pump up for a part is that actually conducive to their health? So I'm, uh, yeah, I think it's great. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of considerations behind it. Well, it is true. And, and I agree with you that the, the entertainment industry is not the leader in terms of ethics and integrity, right? <laughs> I think it offers scale and accessibility. You know, Aditi, I saw you nodding too. Any thoughts on the, the entertainment industry moving into healthcare? Well, I'm always going to nod if someone talks about access and how it's not going to happen with certain things that we're trying. I would just be curious what and who is going to be making this content, right? Same idea with the medfluencers. Who are they going to be using? How are they creating it? And what does that look like? Is it just like short snippets and videos of people learning things? I actually think that's very valuable, but I, you know, I, I'm just curious what they want to do with that. Because I'll tell you, you know, a lot of times you look at a lot of the entertainment out there and there's like a lot of wrong medical knowledge in there all the time. <laughs> and so I'm assuming if people going into this, obviously they're not going to do that kind of thing, but it's just more like, why? Like, what, what is your goal? Why do you want to do this too? I mean, don't you have enough to do? Saying that, I mean, it probably would work well because people are on it. People are using it all the time. And so they can get a lot of information instead of scrolling through Instagram. They could maybe find things by topic that would be interesting and easy to find, like a repository. I think that yeah. is a valuable thing. I think in behavioral health, the best way you can offer things is not creating a new platform and a new place for people to discover it, but integrate it in where they already are. And I think that's a really important part. They are on the TV, they are streaming things. So if you can, if you can layer it as one of the options within their existing offering, I think that reduces friction and will, you know, boost adoption. But there is a big point to be made on, on the quality of the content that is out there. Christophe? Yeah, it's totally true. Um, I mean, if you look at Netflix, uh, they have a number of health documentaries, so-called, on their platform that are that is watched by millions and millions of people. What health being one, uh, what the health, I believe, is one of the most popular ones. But it was not accurate at all from a medical or scientific point of view whatsoever. So there, there's a there's a big danger in there. I think one of the the things that make me think is that 
why don't why doesn't healthcare move more on those platforms as you were also referring to um more because there's a lot to be said about the value of entertainment and health and self-care as a whole i i'm, I'm finishing off my my second book now and one of the the things that i primarily talk about is how aspirations in life the drivers the dreams that we all have are actually a driver for being healthy and happy I know that in previous episodes we talked about, you know, purpose as one of the, the aspirations in life that makes us healthier and happier. Because if we have a purpose, we feel healthier and happier. I think you brought that up in one of the previous episodes, um, Mo. But another one of these drivers is actually, of course, enjoyment. You know, we want to have fun. We want to experience enjoyable things. And so it makes us feel good. It releases stress. It nurtures creativity. It promotes productivity, it develops self-esteem. I mean, it's good for your body. And all of these things are actually closely linked to, you know, with, with other aspirations that I write about as well. And so to me, entertainment is that important. By the way, it's, it's not, it's no surprise that it is used in rest homes as well. You know, entertainment is, is, is that important. It's for that exact reason that it is used in, in rest homes because it brings health and happiness to the people. And now, that said, with the rise of social media, it is said that every company needs to be a media company. Now with TikTok, it is said that every company needs to be an entertainment company because TikTok is really about entertainment. That's why, why people go on TikTok, just to be entertained for 75 minutes straight, for God's sake. But why don't healthcare companies join that revolution as well? Why, why aren't they not more proactive there? I think there's plenty of reasons and arguments for health companies to do it. And so that, again, as with the Metro Institute can counterbalance perhaps the, the other information, the misinformation out there. But I think it's, and we touched upon it already many times in this, in this podcast. I think for one particular reason, it is super interesting to do that. And that's health literacy. And if, with whatever healthcare um, stakeholder you, you could talk about, health literacy is one of the biggest problems. And we touched upon it multiple times already in this podcast alone. And I think that media and entertainment is a great platform to increase health literacy. And indeed, we talk about accessibility, but I mean, we, do, we should not as, underestimate the number of people that have smartphones that are on YouTube, that are on Netflix. And so we, we can easily reach already 85, maybe 90% of the people with some decent health literacy if we do it in an entertaining way. So I really believe that entertainment, yeah. health entertainment is super, super valuable. We just need to do it in the right way. And maybe we, we're missing some a couple of stakeholders that are that need to be moving in into that space yeah yeah good point i think uh you know if healthcare companies would realize that they're in the, the attention business before they they are in the knowledge business that that might be good so last but not least aline what is your feeling about that so from a from a user perspective i think it makes a lot of sense so i agree with what you were saying before more about the the, the tv being the center of the house Christoph, you mentioned the phone, the phone always in our, in our hands. And I think it's actually bringing the experience to the user. If the user can come to you, go where, where the user is. So that's actually also the, the topic of the, the last article that I wrote with the help of uh, chat GPT, where I said that now the, the care is actually going where the patient is. And for me, it's the same concept here. Like if a patient or if a user can't go to the gym to be healthy, well, bring the gym to him. Like the TV is here. And I think it's just more you mentioned that's like merging those technologies in our life. Just just find the place where they are and offer me those facilities here. And regarding the TV, like Samsung TV being used for telemedicine, I think that's very convenient. But I agree with Krupa. That's for like 
there will be some um, some gaps here. Not everybody would have access to that service, but having a TV here, you, you, it's like great quality. That also helps with having a proper tele, uh, video consultation, like yeah, quality consultation. So I think it's uh, it's very positive. Yeah. So proximity entertainment and pleasure if you can bring it together and then drive valuable content and, and meaningful content through that, I think, yes, that also has potential, but also we need to see how, how we can include people that not necessarily have access to that and make sure that the information there is relevant, correct from a healthcare point of view. Good points. Thank you for all your contribution. Giving it back to you, Christophe. Thank you. With these uh, smart words, I'd like to wrap up the Healthy Jazz podcast for this month. Thank you for listening. We hope we were very entertaining. And if you like this show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. By the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi, Aline Doiset, Krupa Suter, and Mo Zuina. My name is Christophe Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm Panel, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more health enthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.